our scripture is from Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Father, uh, thank you for these words read. Um, would you help us to hear them afresh? For some of the, us, they're just really familiar. Um, we just expect, we see Christmas pageants in our minds and hearts and Sunday school lessons, and we think, of course, it's almost December. Here we go again. For others of us, we've never heard them. Um, we've never actually read the passage. Maybe we've heard something new and fresh that we never really took in the first time. Uh, Lord, would you words have power? Uh, however we perceive them, your words have power. And I pray that that power would work. It would burst into the scene, would change our hearts and minds, and that we would be different, that we would encounter you, and that you, Jesus, um, in your coming, would change the very ways that we live, the very ways that we worship, the very ways that we do life. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So our passage this morning actually reads a little bit like a modern-day movie, uh, but it, it, it takes a little bit of work. 
you actually have to scrape away the surface layers of Christmas sentimentality and of Yuletide years gone by. (laughs) Because this kind of movie that our passage reads like is not a Hallmark Channel special. (laughs) And I would argue it's probably not even on Disney+. (laughs) It's actually a different genre altogether Zachariah, surprised by the glorious weightiness of Gabriel alone in a fogged up dark space, is a totally different movie genre. And it's a movie genre for me that uh, pushes me back in time to 19, the mid-1980s and the movie Ghostbusters. Uh, maybe some of you have seen this, maybe you haven't. In the opening scene um, of that movie, we immediately after sort of the, the Statue of Liberty-esque Columbia Pictures montage, you have this sort of aerial shot that slowly, slowly kind of focuses down and pans down on uh, an ordinary sunny day at the New York Public Library, right? You see the stone lions, you see the steps, you see um, you know, flocks of pigeons and tourists and library attenders that are kind of scuttling to avoid the scaffolding here and there. And but then all of a sudden, as it kind of, the camera kind of pans down, you sort of hear this sort of spooky, vibrating organ, right? That only intensifies in volume and frequency until we're popped into the library's door and we're following this sort of anonymous, older-looking, but well-dressed librarian who's pushing a cart of books to return to the stacks. And with kind of that look of grim serious but slightly bored determination. She's pushing forward through the sitting area and the studying area, that beautiful vaulted area in the middle of the New York Public Library, and down into the, the library's dim basement section, um, and past a staircase. And the eerie vibrating music at this point picks up again. She's striding um, into the heart of the basement shelves with her stack of books in her arm, trying to return order to the disordered shelving. And there she is, back turned to us, replacing books carefully to their spots. And we kind of see books move behind her from one shelf to the other across the aisle. And she, we see them, but she doesn't see them. And But she knows that something's wrong, and she kind of turns around, but doesn't see what's happened. She knows something's off, but she dutifully kind of goes, continues her business, grabs the book log, shakes it off, and keeps going about her business. And she passes... Um, what might be unfamiliar to many of us, the card catalog. I don't know if you remember this, there's this thing that they used to have instead of pre-internet, where there was just like stacks of cards that told you where to find things in the library. They had drawers, and all of a sudden, as this librarian's passing the card catalog, the drawers fly open, and there's sort of a fluttering or flipping through of these different cards, and they start shooting up in the air all at once. And so she hears the commotion, thinks who's making a mess, turns around, and sees nobody. And that's when she starts to freak out. And all of a sudden, she's running, screaming, whimpering, half limping through the kind of dark library rows in the basement of the public library. And she's turning corners. She's running scared. And all of a sudden, she turns to the area that must have been probably roughly where the stairwell was. And she throws her hands up, and she screams. And we just see her face lit up by a great white light and a burst of air and a throaty growls in the background. And then it's the title shot, Ghostbusters, right? And you kind of hear this sort of synchronized drum roll and you get the pop song that was really catchy in the 1984, roughly something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters, right? 
and really like confronting some sort of supernatural ghost in the dimly lit darkness of a basement of a library, that kind of blast of white light, the whoosh of wind and fright, that for me captures a bit of the feeling of this scene of old man Zechariah going about his business as a priest and bumping into the great and terrifying glory of the archangel Gabriel in the temple. But instead of Zechariah calling the Ghostbusters, some, you know, trying to eliminate some strangeness that shouldn't be in his humdrum ordinary world, there's this moment where Gabriel speaks into the fright. He speaks a promise that forever changes lives, our lives. First, Zechariah's life, then his wife, Elizabeth's wife, life, and then all of Israel and all of the world and people like us in our lives. And so the question becomes, what do you do in your life when you have an encounter? Something strange that you can't quite explain, maybe at a low level encounter, it just, change, it just interrupts your day, right? You can think of it in multiple ways. Maybe an example would be a phone call from an old friend and they're just in town for the afternoon. Should you drop everything? Or you're, you have a huge commitment that you've prepared for so much time, but you kind of also have to write and it just gets canceled. And all of a sudden you find yourself with hours of free time. Or what do you do with that sort of crisis or gift that you didn't ask for, but it forever changes your life? It's a diagnosis. It could be an inheritance. It could be um, a relationship that just suddenly ends for reasons that you can't quite explain on either side. Or it could just be a new relationship that totally begins. And maybe it begins with a new baby life. You see, this is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and really of all of God's people. We were making do. We're limping along with anxieties and devotion, right? And year after year of growing disappointment, perhaps. But suddenly, something strange happened. An angel. A promise. A baby. A son. And these good gifts, when received, change our very hearts and relationships. So in a sentence, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 are telling us this. God has interrupted our ordinary lives in an extraordinary way. God's interrupted our ordinary lives in an extraordinary way. And that makes us both afraid and joyful. And then the question becomes, Will we lean into, what emotion after that encounter are we going to lean into? Are we going to lean into the joy of it? Or are we going to lean into the frozen fear of it? And so, really, since our kind of, our scene, our movie reel here has like this passage, has a sort of cinematic quality to it, our outline this morning is going to take that metaphor and run with it. And we're looking at a three-point outline that has three real scenes. First scene, ordinary people on a souvenir day. That's our first scene, verses 5 through 10. Second scene, scared in the dark, verses 11 through 20. And our third scene and final scene, silent signs and hidden pleasure, verses 21 through 25. As usual, that outline's behind me or in your bulletin if you want to keep looking at it. But let's look at the lead up to Zechariah's kind of moment 
with the angel in the darkness. And we're gonna look at verses five through 10, ordinary people on a souvenir day. (laughs) So verses five through seven, if you look there, tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were just ordinary people. Like many of us, Zechariah had a job that was mostly remote, but had a sneaky amount of built-in travel, right? So 47 weeks a year, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in kind of, he could work from home. Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah lived in a sort of remote hill country of Judea. You could argue that it was a bedroom community of Jerusalem, really, where Zechariah worked from home for the most part as a teacher and a local religious leader in the town. And likely he worked out of home there, but also he and Elizabeth probably grew some of their own food and kitchen staples in their, in their yard. But five weeks out of the year, Zechariah hopped into the equivalent of a first century uh, gas electric hybrid or GM Yukon. You could could choose your way of righteousness, whether it is sort of fuel efficiency or it's the number of people that you can pick up for ride-alongs from the priestly division on his way to Jerusalem. Either way, regardless of his vehicle, five times a year, for three festivals and two turns serving the temple, Zechariah and his priestly division commuted with heavy traffic into Jerusalem on the ancient equivalent of I-77 into their corporate priestly headquarters, the temple. And while he was there, Zechariah expected to attend and conduct daily and special meetings, animal sacrifices for a week at one time. But before we go into kind of what happened on this particular week and this particular detail of priestly duty, it's worth highlighting two things that our text is at pains to highlight. First, according to verse six, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So just like in the cases of of Noah and of Job in the Old Testament, blameless does not and cannot mean sinless. It means they were devout and committed to keeping God's law. They dutifully attended major festivals and completed required sacrifices. And this religious devotion is emphasized because it's in in sharp distinction to their childless condition. Notice the but of verse seven, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And here's the thing that Luke's trying to do here. He's at pains to, to, cancel out the typical cause and effect that a lot of us have about misfortune in people's lives. Luke does not want us to think bad things always happen to bad people. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not bad. They were blameless, righteous even, in their behavior. Therefore, this bad thing that, that happened, barrenness, was not God's punishment for them. Briefly, we can just learn so much from this. We are way, way too quick to blame others for their misfortunes or blame ourselves for our own misfortunes. We think and sometimes even say, well, what did you do wrong this time? After all, the world feels so much safer if we can find a reason, if we can, if we can avoid that mistake instead of having to endure a kind of suffering that sometimes just happens and is able to happen to any of us at any time. And this is exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth are doing. They're enduring that kind of suffering. They've wanted a child for so many years. And now just like with Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth are well beyond childbearing years. 
And Elizabeth in particular in that day and age would have taken the, the heap of scorn. The social insinuations, well, what did she do? Or what did you do? As well as the fear for the future. Who will take care of us when we can't? But all this just highlights the wonderful dignity of Zechariah and Elizabeth's devotion to God. They don't give in to the temptation to give up on God. They choose to carry the heavier load of disappointment, to continue to faithfully serve the God who opens up wombs, knowing that their hopes are in God's hands and that that God the Father is good and his plans are good, even as their, his plans for their lives are different than their plans for their lives. And even when their plans seem more impossible day after day after day after day. And it's this posture of taking the next daily step, serving God in the next obvious way that leads Zechariah in faith to Jerusalem to serve as a priest. According to verse nine, it's there and then, while doing his five weeks of business travel, that Zechariah's ordinary life experiences a souvenir once in a lifetime day. He was chosen by lot to enter that temple of the Lord and burn incense. And I can only imagine the scene, the priestly backslaps, hey, Zechariah, internal thrill of nervousness as Zechariah's lot was chosen. He watched that whole thing go down. And then he would now for all of his days, people would look at him and say, rich, holy, blessed. And a whole multitude of Jewish people from Jerusalem gathered around and prayed with clipped breaths as Zechariah entered the holy place in the temple, flanked by priestly attendants. And that's where verses 11 through 20 tell us what or rather who Zechariah encountered in that holy room by himself in God's temple. These verses also tell us that Zechariah's reaction. He was scared in the dark. That's verses 11 through 20 our second point this morning. But allow me to set the scene for you. There's a lot of kind of extra historical detail here. Zechariah is left alone. One attendant has come in and he's carried a bowl, a golden bowl of hot coals. He's placed them on the altar. The other attendant has taken a kind of a heap of perfumed incense and put it next to the bowl of coals. And both those daily, those, both those priestly attendants have left the building. And it's just Zechariah there alone. And there's sort of this moment where Zechariah is standing alone in the presence of God. And it's just absolutely silent outside and inside. And people are waiting and he's in this room. It's lit only by one candelabra, just little flames of candlelight. And there's this moment that this most solemn act of the entire day is to occur. Zechariah grabs a handful of ground incense and he lets it fall with a whoosh onto the burning coals. And there's this flame and there's this smoke and there's this choking flames and smoke. And Zechariah, in the midst of all of this, manages to fall on his face, prostrate, reach out his hands and confess a prayer, a prayer that had been that had been kind of uh, memorized for him and memorized by every priest before him for thanksgiving for God's blessings to his people, Israel, but also for future peace for God's people for Israel. And Zechariah in that moment on his face, face down, hands outstretched, doing the scripted prayer goes off script. 
and he stutters out a more personal prayer. Half unsure he should. He prays for God to give Liz a son. And so likely, deathly afraid of overstaying his welcome. It's a holy God. There are people that have died in the temple. Zechariah is in a little bit of a hurry, but he's an old man. So you can imagine him getting up on his all fours, creaking back upright, and then kind of starting to trot out as much as he can. Maybe it's a shuffle. And out of the corner of his eye, as he turns to leave, he sees a shadowy presence. Someone lurking right where the holy place, that's like where you do the incense for priests, meets the curtain of the Holy of Holies. There's a shadowy presence in all the smoke and darkness right there. There, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, it's hard to make out at first, but then in the smoke and the fluttering candlelight, he thinks it's a man. He goes, oh no. (laughs) Someone much, much bigger. And much much brighter, and the wings, six wings stretching over his bald head. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled. That's a really weak translation. A better translation in the Greek would be internally panicking. And when he saw him, Gabriel, and and fear fell upon Zechariah. Zechariah is that movie librarian faced with a great white ghost. And it's important to ask ourselves at this sort of moment, when was the last time that God scared you spitless? Has it happened? Have you had that moment where it just felt like the bottom dropped out, right? When was the last time we were confronted by a power that knocked us off balance, that made us let go of our own power in a given situation? And what message did God give us with those open hands and that open heart? What did he say to you through his scripture, by his spirit, or through a friend speaking his words? And this is why the angel Gabriel, because of this scene, because of the emotion of this scene, has to start his speech by saying, do not be afraid, Zechariah. But then he gives an unexpected reason to not be afraid. Not like, I won't hurt you. Um, He says instead, for your prayer has been heard. Gabriel expects the joy of God's message, his answer of Zachariah's prayers. Gabriel expects that warm delight of joy to melt away the freeze of human fear. And what's the answered prayer? It's on two levels, a very personal and a very cosmic Verses 13 through 15 specify the personal answer to Zechariah's specific prayer request. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, as in John the Baptist, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. God is reversing a long-lived disappointment. He has heard the tired, pain-seared prayer of an old, childless couple. And he is answering their request. A son named John. Joy and gladness. 
many rejoicing, great before the Lord. Truly, God's delays are not always his denials. Or in the words of the poet Henry Longfellow, ah, nothing is too late till the tired heart shall cease to palpitate. And so the true story of a prayer answered eventually is so needed for us, isn't it? We are just so many of us are so tired of the painful prayers that we pray and we carry, especially in December, this time of year, for our family and for our friends, for our bodies and for our souls. But verses 16 through 17 make it clear that God is not just answering a personal prayer in a personal way. He's answering a personal prayer in a cosmic way. God is answering that prayer that, made, that, that was made morning and evening for thousands of years in the nation of Israel at the tabernacle and then the temple for God to bring peace to his people through the rescue of a Messiah. In one breath, God is reversing a long-lived national and religious disappointment. The last time God spoke to his people Israel was in the mid-400s BC, roughly 450 years ago, and his words were were the call to worship that we said earlier in this service from the prophet Malachi. These are the last recorded words of God. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Malachi chapter four, verses five through six. Don't those words sound familiar? If you've been reading the passage, just listen to Gabriel's words about Zechariah and Elizabeth's son to be John the Baptist. And he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he, John the Baptist, will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord Jesus a people prepared. God is breaking 450 years of disappointment, 450 years of silence in order to promise a new Elijah who will come preaching repentance. That is changing families by changing hearts. And this move will move us from for 450 years of silence and brokenness. There's a promise that has come into this planet that there can be reconciliation and not just stubbornness. That there can be wisdom and not just disobedience. And this internal heart change empties our hands and stretches forth our hands to receive another human child after John. John is preceding the Lord Jesus, who like all children, takes those who love them to places that they never, ever imagined. Places they didn't intend to go. If you're a parent or you know a young child, this is your story. All of a sudden you're, you're experiencing unguarded emotions like joy and gladness, and sometimes the opposite of those. But then you're also, you're moving from these, into these hard and healing actions that you thought were too big for you, like forgiveness. But I love that Zechariah's reaction to this is included. It's not a neat and tidy Christmas story. In the dark, with the angel and his shining promises, 
uh, he reminds us of how hard it is to give up the ghost of fear. If you've been a Christian for more than a month, you get this moment where you get this huge promise. Then you look around you and you say, it's dark in here. And so he's haunted by his fears. Verse 18 reminds us, here comes the fear again. And here's what he says. We're too old. It's too good to be true. I don't believe you. I need a bit more proof, heavenly messenger, sir. And Gabriel simply says this, one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I just brought you the gospel, literally the good news. <laughs> and behold, here's your sign, okay? Not just for you, but for everybody who lets fear, the fear we can control get in the way of the gladness that we can expect. The proof for you, Zechariah, is that you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things take place because they will take place in a matter of days. And then Luke directs our attention outside of the temple for our third and final scene, verses 21 through 25. And it's really just Zechariah making silent signs and Elizabeth enjoying a hidden pleasure. Verses 21 through 23, leave us with what it's meant to be a comic scene. This is Zechariah outside the temple. There's this growing murmur of the crowd, right? They're restless because Zechariah has yet to emerge from the holy place in the temple. This is taking a lot longer than usual. They're waiting for the priestess to march onto the steps to make his prayer and to make his benediction like he always does. But then he's not coming and they think, did he die in there? Because that's happened before. Only to have Zechariah stagger out pale as a ghost, having seen something as close as it comes to a ghost, but being unable to explain what happened. He's completely mute. And then verse 22 tells us he tried to play a first century version of charades. He's got nothing, right? He says two syllables. It's in a book. Rhymes with angel. Okay. Or, uh, uh, okay, it has a name, three syllables. Sounds like, oh boy. Eventually, Zechariah is dismissed by the crowd and allowed to get back into his first century fuel-efficient Prius and fight off the traffic back up I-77 to his bedroom community and home with Elizabeth. And we can only imagine the silent signs He's rehearsing behind the wheel on his commute home to try to explain to his wife what happened in the temple and the promise he's been given. And so at the very end, in verses 24 and 25, Luke shifts our perspective from Zechariah to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has, um, her body is telling her in clear ways what Zechariah's hand signs never could. She's pregnant. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying in words similar to Rachel in Genesis chapter 30, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Truly God's delay is not his denial. Unlike her husband, Elizabeth chooses to stay with the joy over the fear. She's giddy with the warmth of this pleasant surprise for her old age. And she's kind of privately waking up each morning and pinching herself for five months straight in disbelief. And she's not just counting the social blessings, no more reproach, no more shame. She's tracing the gift back up to the giver. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me. 
And really, this kind of just all goes back to, for me, to the 1984 version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> right? It's a movie that's also filled with some comedy and some hidden pleasure. The very ending of it especially, the Ghostbusters have just crossed proton energy streams and they blasted to smithereens the god of destruction, Gozer, who last appeared into a King Kong-sized Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, if you've seen the movie. And the Ghostbusters are in the final scene. They're staggering around, covered in marshmallow puff. That's the silent signs of comedy. And when they see and they hear a cracking sound, and out of the burnt-out, hardened rubble of two statues, a woman's hand appears. And they all begin tearing away at the stone. And suddenly there, there's a woman and a man where only scorched and hardened stones were before. It's a hidden pleasure. And despite the eerie and suddenly sentimental soundtrack, it was the 1980s, and the, 19, and the comedic elements of this, there's actually something kind of moving about a man and a woman breaking out of a hardened shell to live again. Moving from disappointment to joy, from duty into gladness for the future. It reminds us that even now, even in this Advent season, God is on the move. He's present and he's working. He's shaping the events of our personal lives and he's shaping the events of the cosmos according to his very purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us and I pray that you would use them that you would bring us into the scene and would you set our hearts to wait for you. Show us the places where it's hard to wait and give us by your spirit the patience and the desire and the hope and the faith. We ask this in your name. Amen.